We've been studying the book of Philippians, starting last week. We're going to continue. We have our um, second uh, message from the first chapter of Philippians this morning. And Paul writes about his circumstances, which at the current time aren't the greatest in the world. He's in jail. We found out from last week that he's... uh, can find joy in the midst of his circumstances because he has a strong partnership with the church at Philippi. Uh, They pray for him. They were with him when he went to jail in the city of Philippi. And now years later, he's in jail again, uh, not in that location, but somewhere else. And they're reaching out to him and vice versa. They have been reaching out to him for some time uh, in terms of just seeing that uh, he is cared about and looked after, and Paul acknowledges that in this letter. But he's writing from prison, and it's got to be tough to know, not know when you're going to be released or if you're going to be released. And he raises a question in this passage about whether to go ahead and get die at this time, be with our Lord in heaven, or to continue on in whatever ministry capacity he still has while he's still in prison. When Karen and I were overseas, we were stationed in Germany, and I had the chance to visit several of the prison camps that uh, were uh, built during World War II for uh, the Holocaust. Well, the Holocaust was a result, but during that time, several well-known people were also in Carthage, some who survived and some who didn't. And I think uh, particularly of, of the four that I'm familiar with are Anne Frank, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Corey Ten Boom, and, and Victor Frankel. Um, I had the uh, privilege of, of seeing all four of the prison camps that uh, these people have been in. There were many others, but I've had a chance to, to to go there, take soldiers with me, and to conduct our own memorial services in those camps um, years later, years later. But one that stands out to me in terms of Paul's situation right now is Victor Frankel. He experienced some of the, uh, the worst pain and suffering ever afflicted on, on he, he and, and those that were with him. Uh, that were ever afflicted on any group of, of human beings uh, then and previously and maybe even now. For three years, he was a prisoner in Auschwitz, which was the worst of the camps, and he was moved around from there to, to others. Everything he owned, possessed, was taken from him. He lost his life and the rest of his family. Uh, they died in the camps, and he didn't know that until he was released from the camps, that his wife of only a couple of years uh, had not made it. He lost the manuscript for his uh, book on psychotherapy. If you're not aware, Viktor Frankl was a uh, psychiatrist. He had nothing left while he was in prison but his body and his mind. During those years, he experienced starvation, cold. He was forced, had to conduct forced labor from dawn until dusk, nighttime. There was sickness, disease, and the constant presence 
of death um, all around him. The most natural thing to do in that situation would be to succumb to hopelessness, despair, and death. Yet in the midst of that, Frankel found meaning in the midst of that suffering. He even wrote about it years later um, in terms of the meaning of, of suffering. Paul must have experienced some of the same things while he was in prison. A sense of hopelessness, despair, and death. Yet he writes, rather that he rejoices. As we look in the book of Philippians, we see the word rejoice and joy over and over and over again. And as I mentioned last week, it's kind of the glue that holds the book together. There are several themes, themes throughout the book of Philippians, but joy keeps coming back up as if to say, segue to the next one, segue to the next one. I want to remind you that I'm experiencing joy and I'm rejoicing in you. Last week, he was rejoicing in his partnership with the Philippians, and he was rejoicing um, in that what God was doing through them. But as he comes to uh, this passage, starting in verse 12, he tells us that human circumstances are in God's hands, and God uses them to the advance of the gospel. That's the first theme in the second half of chapter 1. Our, our circumstances, whatever they are, are in God's hands, and God uses them to advance the gospel. There is a purpose to all of this. We don't always know what it is, but there is a purpose to all of this. Starting with verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear through the, throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains, that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel. Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel. He's chained to a guard 24 hours a day. And they all know, those that are chained to him for whatever shifts they're chained to him, they and all the other um, guards know exactly why Paul is in prison, that it was not for a criminal offense, but rather for a belief, a belief in Jesus Christ, and that he's in chains for that particular belief. And not only do they know this, that because they know this, and the other prisoners around him know this, it has served to advance the gospel. This is one of the first thing that Paul in this passage takes, takes note of, that regardless of what is happening to me, I know that my circumstances are being used to advance the gospel. And that everyone knows that he's there in his chains because of that gospel. I feel very much a sense of freedom because of the gospel. I've not been incarcerated for my faith. I hope and pray that that won't come in our country. But there are people around the world that are incarcerated because of their faith. Not only are they incarcerated because of their faith, they might be beaten. 
We know that in Islam countries, many of them are beheaded if they've been uh, taken into uh, uh, incarceration or by other means uh, subdued. But yet, they continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in spite of their circumstances. And Paul relishes in this, that the gospel is being advanced, that people know why he's there, and he's become confident in the people that he's writing to that because of his change, that they too will endure and spread the gospel. For at any moment, some of them could be in the same situation as Paul is, but yet they have the confidence to go ahead and spread the gospel because they know of Paul. I often wondered if we really knew the stories of those that have been beheaded for Jesus Christ, that are being persecuted for Jesus Christ, even some of our kids in the schools that, that speak about Christ and they're put down by other kids, Does that give us confidence to go ahead and preach all the greater about Jesus Christ? Or, we do, or do we say, eh, we'll pray for them. That's them. That's not here. Or does it inspire us to continue to be bold in what we know is the truth? We've had it easy in America. My pastor growing up, used to say, what the church in America needs is 10 good years of persecution. Well, I didn't agree with them at the time, and I don't want to proclaim that now. But persecution does give us confidence. It does help us to proclaim the gospel without fear. What Paul is noting here is that God not only works in spite of his circumstances, but he also knows that God is working in his own life. Paul has subordinated himself to God's will, not his own. We see later on that Paul would rather uh, get out of prison and go back to be with the Philippians to encourage them. But when he weighs it all, no, I'm going to subordinate myself to God's will. Paul, later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, wrote about all the things that were great about him. And there was much that was great about Paul. We'll see later on in the book of Philippians that Paul also talks about some of the great things that he has done and, and who he is, but says that he counts it as nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ. But in Corinthians... He talks about his greatness and the things that he has accomplished and, and could probably still do, but in the midst of that, he's focused on an area in his life where he is really weak. Because in that weakness, he is reminded daily that he doesn't have the strength to overcome that particular weakness. And he glean God because of that, because in that weakness, he's reminded of God's strength. 
that it's God that is doing what has been done, not Paul himself. And so he glories in his weakness. And I think while he's in prison, he's finding that God is getting glory about over his own circumstances and things that he's not able to do because he's in jail. But God is greater than his circumstances, and he's going to glory in that. We find Jesus doing the same thing when he went to the cross. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if it be your will, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to be crucified. When he looked at what the cross meant, what it would mean for humankind, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What Paul is doing in his circumstances is submitting himself, his own will, to God's will. And in that, he's able to rejoice because the gospel is being advanced. People are becoming confident. People know that he's there for Jesus Christ. And people are proclaiming the gospel without fear. And any time we submit our will to God's will, that's what's going to happen. We're going to get the glory. His gospel will be advanced. And others will have confidence because of what we are experiencing. If we will only submit our will to God's will. Secondly, in this passage, Paul talks about God working through adversity. Starting with verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. It's not unusual for me to experience jealousy over somebody else's ministry. Uh, I fight that battle. Hey, they got it going. They got a great thing going. And then I realize God's doing great things through everyone that submits their will to Him. That God can do great things in spite of me. In spite of my circumstances. But there were people there that actually were preaching the gospel for selfish ambition. We talked in Sunday school this month. Uh, what did you call it, Duncan? The, uh, the ministry that this one particular preacher has at... Health, health and wealth gospel. There's, uh, oh, I, I can't think of his name, but you mentioned it this morning. We've heard his name maybe. Joel Osteen, is it, I think? And I'm not putting Joel Osteen down because the gospel is being preached. Okay? Listen to that. That's what Paul was saying. The gospel was being preached. But Joel Osteen preaches a gospel that says we can uh, be well, we can be prosperous, and all we have to do is claim it from Jesus as ours. Well, there are some things that I've claimed as mine that I didn't get. 
My stepdad had a 1962 Corvette that he re, uh, rebuilt. Uh, my mother bought it for him for $700 because it was out in the field, completely torn down. He rebuilt it twice. The second time, he restored it to its original uh, specifications, color, everything. And I wanted that in the worst way. And before he died, he asked me if I wanted it. I said, Lord Jesus, yes. It's mine. It's mine. I had a couple of stepsisters and a couple of full that also wanted that Corvette. And Karen advised me, don't go for it. One, you don't know how to work on a car. And secondly, it's going to be a problem in the family if you take it. But he asked me if I wanted it. I was, oh, right. Cool, man. Jesus, thank you. That, that Joel Osteen stuff works. <laughs> I'm going to get it. So, on the day that I was going to answer the question whether I wanted it or not, he said, I've had an offer on the vet. And I wanted to know whether you wanted it before I sold it. The offer was $33,000. I'll sell it to you for 30. <laughs> that took all the steam out of that prosperity belief. I did not buy it. I did tell Karen that she could buy it for me, but that didn't work out anymore. <laughs> but some people preach this type of prosperity that we're going to get what we want. And it come, sometimes comes out of selfish ambition because the collections that they receive themselves are great. And a lot of money is doled out. Some of them do it out of envy. They're jealous. I've been there. And some would like to have made Paul jealous. Hey, look what we're doing. We're not getting arrested. You're in jail for this, but we're out here doing this, and we're just free as can be. Aren't you, aren't you envy of us? They're insincere in the preaching of the gospel. It becomes a job. I've known many pastors who have succumbed to the idea that pastoring is a vocation, a career, rather than a calling. And it's a calling for life. That we preach gospel as a calling for life. Some of them want to stir up trouble. Hey, Paul, we're preaching the gospel out here. And we know that as long as we're preaching out here, it's going to make it tougher for you in there. Because they think that this is expanding. And they, they can't keep it down just because they have you there. So we're going to do it just to cause trouble. We have false motives, motives that aren't pure. Sometimes the venue becomes the most important thing to them rather than the gospel itself. I've seen this happen a lot. Karen and I, uh, right after we were married, we got set up with a, uh, a group that was doing high school assemblies and we traveled for a year putting on uh, their assembly. It was a multimedia type deal. Things that you can now do on your cell phone, we took us a half dozen slide projectors, a 
projector, movie projector, sound system with big speakers and fast music. And it was a uh, very positive, well-received program, but the people we were working for became more excited about their venue than they did the message that it, it had. We lasted a year, but we realized that God had other things for us. Because for me, it wasn't about the venue. It was about the message. And so Paul goes on to say, God works through adversity. Although there are some that are preaching out of, for adverse reasons, there are those that are preaching out of goodwill. And those people are preaching the gospel out of love and out of truth. Joseph was one who, during tragedy, he actually flourished. And his brothers came years later to call on him, thinking that he might be able to save them from the drought and the famine that was taking place. And years earlier, they had thrown him into a pit to get rid of them because they were jealous of his relationship with their father. It was a special kind of a relationship that only he had. And years later, when they come to Egypt looking for help, it was Joseph who had risen to the heights in the uh, Egyptian empire that was there to provide them food. And they didn't recognize him at first, but when they did, they thought for sure that Joseph was going to bring retaliation, that Joseph was going to do them in. Joseph explained who he was, what had happened, and he says, you intended me harm, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We find ourselves in circumstances sometimes and with adversaries around us, adversaries around us sometimes that maybe are seeking to do us harm. But the reality is, is that what those intended for harm, God intended for good to accomplish his will and purpose. And I think Paul is seizing that idea and that memory of the stories of Joseph in this setting when he says, although there are adversaries and although my circumstances aren't great, what the world meant for harm, God meant for good. The saving of many lives. The gospel is being preached. And now, later on in this same passage, we... Paul using that word rejoice. He uses it twice in a row. He says, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. He rejoices now, and he will rejoice in the future. He's not looking to the past necessarily at all. He's looking at today. He's going to rejoice. And he's going to rejoice down the road. Oh, there's lots of things that I could rejoice in my past. And Paul did this when he wrote... In 2 Corinthians about all the things that he accomplished. And what he writes in Philippians chapter 3 about the things that he has accomplished. 
He doesn't relish on that past. He relishes on today. That God is working in his, in his circumstances today and that God will work in his circumstances in the future. I will rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. Starting with verse 9. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if, I'm go on, if I am to go on living in this body, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet I choose. I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart, to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. His boasting is in Jesus Christ, not himself. We've already mentioned that several times. But Paul says he's going to rejoice today in the days ahead of him. And his rejoicing is based, as we saw last week, on the prayer partnership of the Philippians. But he adds something in this particular verse that wasn't there in the previous passage that we looked at last week. He says... I will rejoice because of the provision of God's Spirit. There's something going on with the Holy Spirit that is now helping Paul. He's not doing it alone. The very Spirit of God is there with him. And because of that, because of the prayers of the Philippians, and because of the Holy Spirit working in his life in this current situation, bringing him joy, he says, I have hope. I have hope. He also says a, a, a purpose. Hope and a purpose. We go back to Victor Frankl and his idea about meaning that those that could survive meant that they had found some reason to survive and that was based on something being important in their lives that brought them meaning. And Paul says, I have hope and I have a purpose. I have meaning. in our country is at epidemic numbers. We know that veterans commit suicide to the tune of possibly 20 some a day. It's not just veterans, it's throughout. You talk to Doc Jones, he'll tell you about the number of suicides that he's aware of on this island. And then many of those that contemplate suicide as a way out. It comes from a lack of hope. It comes from a lack of purpose and meaning in their lives. It comes from a loss of connection to other people. It comes from a lack of self-value. There's all kinds of other things that go along with it that 
could be discussed, but what Paul finds well, in his, his circumstances, because he's well-connected to these people in Philippi, and he's got the help of the Holy Spirit, he has found hope to go on. He has found a purpose to go on living. He's found courage to live. He's found courage to die. And he's waiting with eager expectation of what God is going to do next. In the life of somebody that is suicidal, there is no eager expectation of anything except finding a way out through death. But Paul, not only is his joy based on the prayer partnership and God's provision of the Holy Spirit, it's based on the courage that he has to face life and death. Paul's in a win-win situation. If he goes on living, it's a win. He goes back to help the church at Philippi, to encourage them, and to provide strength in teaching, in ministry. That's a win situation. If he dies, goes to be with Jesus Christ. A win-win situation. What could be wrong with that picture? Paul says that in this win-win situation later on in the fourth chapter, that he has ability to be content wherever he is, whatever he's doing, because he's content in Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 10 through 13, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, for I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty because I have learned the circuit of being content in every situation because of Jesus Christ. If he goes on living, for Paul it meant fruitful labor. It meant that, that there was progress in the faith for others. He found joy in that. And living meant boasting in Jesus Christ. Dying, it was gain. Better to, to depart and be with Christ. But if I have to stay, I will. I find glory in that too. Leads me to raise a question or a thought. Being secure of the future, which Paul was, very secure with the future. He knew that if he died, he'd be with Christ. He knew if he was released, he'd be get to go back to the churches that he had started and continue to encourage them. So he knew that he had a win-win in the future. A lot of us prepare our lives in such a way so that well, what's called retirement, and I'm not sure what it is yet, but when we get to that point, we're in a win-win situation, either financially, socially, psychologically, all of that above. But because of his security of the future, Paul did not find an excuse to relax his efforts in sharing the gospel. Because we have eternity with Jesus Christ, 
does not give us permission to relax in proclaiming Jesus Christ. As I've often told my older vets in getting ready for end of life, when they say, how come I'm not dying? I would say, well, apparently you got some living to do yet. How do you want to do it? I think God asks that of us. And so he tells the Philippians, and I'll leave you with this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. In spite of our circumstances, in spite of our adversaries, whether I live or whether I die, I want to stand firm, striving together with those around me, together as one for the faith of the gospel. I invite the worship team to come forward as we close.